Go ahead and get our Bibles out. We are continuing on in our Refresh series. We've covered the purpose for the church, the gospel, biblical theology. Now we are going to talk about the doctrine of conversion. I recently submitted a manuscript for a book deal that I've been working on since before the foundations of the world, and uh, I was pretty nervous about the feedback that I was going to receive from the editors because I, you know, I've heard stories about how editors can demolish the manuscript of a seasoned writer, how much more for a first-time writer. Well, a few weeks after the submission, I got a call from the main editor who said exactly what any first-time writer would want to hear. He said, Sean, the manuscript sings, it sings, it's glorious. I'll send you the manuscript with some suggested edits tomorrow, but really good job. Wow. And then I got the edits. I opened the email, clicked on the Word document, and what I saw there was unbridled red ink carnage. It was a bloodbath. When I saw how many edits were being suggested to this very, very, very short manuscript, I thought I would hate to see a manuscript that doesn't sing. Now, during this ordeal, I I got to thinking about human nature, because I think most of us perceive human nature in the way that this editor talked about the manuscript, right? It's basically good, even if it needs to be worked on even if we have to edit to get some things right, even if we have to do some heavy editing to get it to where we want it to be, it's basically really good. Like in every home improvement show on HGTV, we got to fix this, but the bones are good, right? Is that how you think about human nature, you know? It's, It's some aesthetic stuff needs to be fixed, but the bones are good? You know, most people think about human nature in that way, but there are other views, uh, Our friend Jean-Jacques Rousseau, if you've never heard of him, don't worry, he's just a French philosopher, which means he's really important. He he said that human nature is kind of like a blank slate, and it can be molded for better or for worse by the forces of society. How he defines better or worse is for a different conversation. So how do you think about human nature? Do you think it's basically good? Do you think it's basically bad? Do you think it's somewhere in the middle? It's neutral? It might seem strange to you that I would begin this sermon by asking you, ostensibly a room full of Christians, what you think about human nature, considering the fact that the Bible very clearly tells us who we are in our nature apart from Christ. The Bible tells Christians that human beings are corrupted by sin, that we are fallen, that we are damaged, but it's not at all uncommon for Christians to pay more attention to the Rousseaus of the world than the God of the Bible. Scripture is very clear, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Going on, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Ephesians 2, and you were doing in your trespasses and sin. You were by nature children of wrath. That means who you are in your very nature would elicit the wrath of God's righteous judgment. 
Romans 6 says that we are enslaved to sin. So it's not that sometimes we do oopsie-daisies and sometimes we get it right. It's that we've been taken captive by it. Romans 5.10 says that we are guardians of God in our natural state. Ephesians 2, we could just keep going down the list. The world, which includes churches that have been taken captive by the world, the world will tell us any number of different lies about who we are at our core. And who wouldn't want to believe the kinds of lies that the world tells us? The kind of lies that tell us that our problems are not foundational, but superficial. That our hearts are not deceived and broken, that we just got some emotional stuff to work through because, you know, the family we grew up in and the society that we're a part of. Lies that tell us that perhaps we don't need to be fundamentally changed. All we really need is some light editing. God, in his word, tells us the very good, very hard truth about who we are apart from Jesus. God tells us that we need to be changed, not superficially, at the deepest possible level. The house does not need to be fixed by a fresh, fresh coat of paint and some new drywall and maybe some bush out in front. The house needs to be torn down and built. Now, how does a fundamental change like that take place? How do you change your, your nature? How do you fix your spiritual DNA? I mean, if the main issue that we faced as human beings was psychological, we could let, you know, Dr. Freud or Young lay us down on their couch. We could let them plumb the depths of our psychological disorders. They could climb into the fissures of our psyche and help us heal the cracks of our subconscious from the inside out. If the main issue of mankind there in society, causing us unhappiness by repression and oppression, well, then we could just look to the writings of Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, who would then spur us on to rally together and to go out and to fix the system or tear it down and rebuild it. That's neither here nor there. If the main issue that we were facing as human beings was physical in nature, we could just look to the aesthetic religious experience, you know, buffet the body, or maybe we could look doctors or homeopaths, or physical trainers, and they'd help us fix what was wrong with us. Friends, God is clear in his word that although we do experience the effects of the fall physically and in society and emotionally, the fundamental issue that we're dealing with is spiritual in nature. Meditating on this reality, D.A. Carson says, if God had perceived our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian, an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and so he sent us a savior. Now, up to this point in the sermon, I haven't really said anything different than what I've said in the previous two sermons on the gospel and, and really the gospel again. <laughs> two sermons on the gospel. Anybody have a problem with that? No? Okay. Didn't think so. But I mean, the basic thing that we're rehearsing here again is man is dead in sin. Jesus brings us life. He's the only great hope of our salvation. This is Christianity 101. This is basic gospel stuff. What this morning sermon is going to address is how the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is applied to sinners for their salvation. This morning's sermon is to, is to, to answer the question, the purpose is to answer the question, 
how does one go from being in the world to being in Christ? Okay? How does, how does one from darkness to light? How does a Christian transfer his citizenship from one kingdom to another? This is the question of the doctrine of conversion. So let me pray, and then we will jump in together. Father God, you are the sovereign Lord of our lives. Without you, there's no hope. There is no life. There is no good thing. So we depend on you, Lord, and we vocalize our dependence on you this morning. We pray that you would inject us fresh truth, that we would be spurred on to love and to every, every good, so that we would be uh, well-equipped to carry out the mission that you've called us to. The glory of your name and for the good of your people, lead us now through your word. Amen. So, the question of conversion. How does one become a Christian? Well, he converts. But now we're now to the age-old problem of separation by a common language, right? I can use the word convert, you can use the word convert, and it mean two totally different things. What does conversion mean? Well, most of the world's major religions use the language of conversion when they talk about the, the act of someone appropriating their faith, that faith for themselves. So, for example, consider the religion of Islam. How does one become a Muslim? Well, you have to convert. How do you convert? Well, you have to practice the first pillar of the Islamic religion, which is the Shahada. That's sincerely reciting the Muslim profession of faith. So if you want to become a Muslim in front of two or three witnesses, you will three times say, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah Allah. You have to forgive me, my Arabic rusty. And what that translates into is, there is no true God but Allah, and Muhammad is the prophet. Say that three times in front of two to three Muslim witnesses, and you have begun the process of conversion. Now, someone who is unfamiliar with Orthodox Islam and Orthodox Christianity, they might look at that and say, man, that's so similar to Christianity. I mean, doesn't, doesn't the Bible say that if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you will be saved? I can just imagine a, I can just imagine a freshman in a comparative world religions class you know, listening to his professor saying, you see, it's all the same thing. Christians, Muslims, Jews, they all have some doctrine of conversion, and it's essentially the same. Well, friends, our doctrine of conversion is entirely different than the Muslim doctrine of conversion. Uh, first, in Islam, the first step that you take is part of a journey. There's no singular event in Islam where you become a Muslim, you remain a Muslim forever. What happens is you take the first step in the journey, the first pillar of the five pillars, then you have to go on and practice the others, like ritual prayers, giving alms, going to Mecca, fasting during Ramadan. Over the Muslim doctrine of conversion is best understood as reversion. Let me let a, a Muslim cleric explain it to you. Islam introduced the concept of innate religion to express the idea that everyone is endowed at birth with a natural ability to know God. Quran states that every soul before creation was asked the question by God, am I not your Lord? And the souls answered, yes. Thus, Muslims consider all children as Muslims until they reach puberty. The tradition of the prophet puts that children are born possessing the innate religion, and it is their parents who turn them into Jews or Christians or Muslims. Therefore, by, by coming to Islam, one turned to the religion which he already had present in his nature. It is for this reason that some converts to Islam prefer the word revert to convert. So, according to Islam, all human beings are Muslims. 
And then later, when they finally revert back to, Christi- uh, excuse me, to Islam, all they're doing is going back to the religion that they had before they were born and before they could be indoctrinated by their parents. Now, friends, I'm not going to spend all morning talking about various and sundry bad understandings of conversion from different religions around the world. But you should know that the reason why a sermon like this is so difficult and why it's actually needed is because even in the Christian church, in Bible-believing churches, churches that have a lot of theological good stuff in common, a biblical understanding of conversion is confused, often contested, and uh, all too often just flat-out ignored. And that has some pretty serious consequences. So what happens when we become a Christian? Are we going from good to better, from sinner to saint? Are we reverting back to a state of childlike ends in truth? Well, how do you answer these questions matters, not just for your individual life. It matters for us together as a church. So there are two aspects of the biblical doctrine of conversion I want us to look at this morning. These are going to be points, but not really. Sorry, note takers. It's not a real note taker kind of morning. But the two aspects, if you just want to write them down anyways, I've got to put something in here. Uh, repentance of faith, and then you can kind of put in brackets, that's kind of the human perspective. And then regeneration, which is divine perspective. So let's start with repentance and faith. Repentance and faith, this is usually the stuff that makes the most sense to us as evangelical Christians. Right? To follow Jesus, we have to repent. If you don't know what that means, it's simply just to turn away from your sins. And then when we repent, we don't just turn away from sin, we turn, we turn to God, we turn to Jesus in faith. They're just two opposite sides of the same coin. This is basic gospel preaching. Turn away from the world, turn to Jesus. Jesus, Mark 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 13, says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is what Jesus preached. This is what all of his disciples have been preaching ever since he preached it. Now, this, this aspect, this human aspect of conversion, this is the piece of the puzzle that churches tend to, to divide of time and attention to. And for good reason. Our response to Jesus, his call on our lives, his gospel message to us, our response to that is very important. It's, it's so important, it's indispensable, right? But we have to be careful. Because what can seem like a true conversion can in fact be nothing more than intellectual assent or moral calibration or just an emotional response. None of which are inherently bad, but also none of which are true conversion. The gospel, friends, demands more than an added adjustment. The gospel demands more than emotional tune-ups. Jesus demands more than behavior modification. What God requires of us in order to follow him is a genuine heart change. And that's where the second fact comes into play, the doctrine of generation. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. The fundamental question of most of the world religions goes something like this. What does God want from me? That's the question that most world religions are trying to answer. And the answer that most religions give that question is, behavioral in nature. It's performance-oriented. You have to do this and do that, and don't do this and don't do that, and if you do all the right things and don't do all the wrong things, well, then perhaps God will accept you. You can see that if we go back to the religion of Islam, you practice the five pillars, fifth being the most important, you really want to get that. That's like the bonus round, and if you can do all those things, hopefully God will receive you into his kingdom. 
Christianity is unique in this regard amongst all the religions of the world. Christianity not only says that behavior modification isn't enough, it's not just about obeying all the rules that God has laid out for you. Christianity also says that behavior modification that is not rooted in true heart change is still just another form of rebellion. Think about the parable of the prophet's son. The son went away and rebelled in the world. The other son stayed home and obeyed all the rules, but was prideful in doing so, but was nevertheless dead in sin. This is the reason why God says to the prophet Isaiah, all of your works are like filthy rags. What does he mean? He means that all the good things that you were doing for God didn't count at all to God because you weren't doing it from a place of sincerity in your heart. The gospel is keep your sacrifices, keep your religious displays, keep your sudden morality if it's not rooted in genuine love for and faith in God and his son, Jesus Christ. Christianity alone addresses man at the level of the heart. And when it does address us in that way, it tells us that what we need more than anything is a new heart. My favorite way to illustrate this point comes from, from Piper. He shared the time uh, his teenage son wanted to take the car out for the night, Saturday night. Asked him that morning, yeah, sure, no problem, son. You can take it. Just make sure you clean it before you go out. Clean it, and it can be yours for the night. Well, sure enough, the son comes around, you know, an hour or so before it's time to take the car and go. He goes, Dad, so checking good to go with that car? Dad goes, yeah, just, you got it cleaned, right? Wrong. Of course, he didn't have it cleaned. He, and John Piper says, yeah, you can take the car, just get it clean before you go. So the son, he huffs and he puffs and he stomps and he slams cabinets and he's out there and John Piper looks out the window while he's walking the car and he's scrubbing it as angry as you can. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're doing it, but he needs, even the way he's spraying water on the car is like full of like venom and rage. He comes back and he goes, car clean, heads out. Do you think that the father in that scenario is pleased with the works of his son's hands? No. No. It's just another kind of rebellion. He's done all the right things. He's obeyed the rule in a way that is entirely unsatisfactory to the father. Well, that's what we do. When we try to have a relationship with God, try to fix our relational fissures, when we try to obey all the rules without changing our heart first. But that's a problem, friends, because we can't change our hearts. If what God demands of us is a new heart, we are in a very, it's a very difficult situation. We cannot change our hearts. Prophet Jeremiah explained to the king in this way. He says, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. If you take some time to look at the rich and varied metaphor used throughout Scripture, talk about this doctrine of regeneration, this having your heart changed, what you'll find is that they all communicate the same idea, that what we need most is something that we cannot conjure up in ourselves. What we need most is something that must come from outside of us. It's not something that can be done by us. It's something that has to be done for us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, talks about regeneration as a man being woken up. Awake, O sleeper, and to rise from the dead. They draw your mind back to Lazarus as he lies there in the tomb. Lazarus give up of his own free will? No. To be raised by God. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2.
Arthur Morgan Smith read these verses for us earlier. I'd like for us to consider them again in light of what we're saying here. Ephesians chapter 2, just starting in verse 1, Paul talks about our state prior to Christ and his saving work. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. See, friends, this is our predicament. A dead man cannot raise himself back up to life. When I was deployed, I saw a lot of dead people. None of them ever got back up. Sometimes people were almost dead and they were resuscitated back to life when they were this close to going to the other side, but no one ever just got back up once their heartbeat stopped. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then here's the fruit of it, right? The reason why you, li- the, the re- you were dead in your trespasses and sins that led you to follow the course of this world, follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the things of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were dead, that was the issue, which led to living in all kinds of carnal ways. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's interesting that Paul just ends with that. By grace you have been saved. Why do you say that right there at the end? Because grace, what it means biblically, is that God did something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. You couldn't raise yourself up. God had to raise you up when you were helpless to raise yourself. This is regeneration. Colossians uses the same language of being rescued. This time, think about hostage being saved by a SWAT team. Colossians 1.13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus uses this same language. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 3. <clears throat> In John chapter 3, Jesus has an encounter with a Pharisee, a guy who's supposed to know his Bible, Nicodemus. And he wants to know from Jesus, you know, where are you coming from? What deal? Tell me what I need to know, Rabbi. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, being born of the water just refers to natural childbirth. We won't get into the graphics, but there it is. And being born of the Spirit refers to Regeneration. Verse 5. Uh, so, excuse me, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. What Jesus is saying here is if, if you want to make it to heaven, if you want to be a true worshiper of God, if you want to pass from death to life, you have to be reborn. And it makes no sense to Nicodemus. He doesn't have the categories in place to process this teaching. Nicodemus does not have a religious category for salvation that is accomplished for you by God outside of the purview of your individual will. He doesn't have that category in place. But he should have. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He had oodles and oodles of the Bible memorized. He had read Ezekiel 36, who knows how many times? 
Listen to the language that Jesus, excuse me, listen to the language that Ezekiel uses and how it's so connected to what Jesus says here in John 3. God, speaking to his people, says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to carefully observe ordinances. So listen, you are works-oriented in your relationship to God. God's giving you his law. You're trying to walk it out. You're trying to obey it. You're trying to let it out. You can't. You're failing. You cannot keep all of God's rules. What's God's solution? How's he going to fix this problem, you being lawbreaker and all? Is he going to give you new laws, better laws? Is he going to give you more discipline, more willpower? No, Jocko willing, just do it. Discipline. No. You said dead heart can't find it within itself to obey the rules. So what God says is, I'm going to give you new heart. I'm going to address this at the heart level. In Scripture, the heart is the source of all that we are. From the heart flows all things, from impure speech to brotherly love. Whatever we do, whatever we say, however we live, all of those waters flow from the fount of the human heart. Before we were saved, we sinned because our heart was sinful. We rebelled because our heart was bent on rebellion. We didn't believe, not because we didn't want to, but because we couldn't believe. A heart that's dead in sin, that's as hard as a rock, cannot produce faith. Our believing organ wasn't working. Let me pause right here and just make sure we're all on the same page. If you can track the kind of the logical flow of what I'm doing this morning. The answer to the question, what does God want from us, is obedience. But there's a problem with that because our hearts are messed up, right? So what do we really need? We need heart change. But that's also a problem because we can't change our own heart. We can't do surgery on ourselves. Maybe, maybe some of you can. So what are we to do? What hope do we have? Well, the answer that God gives us is that he will give us new hearts. Friends, this is the doctrine of regeneration. And without this understanding of regeneration, your understanding of conversion, the way the human and the divine components fit together, it will be thoroughly taught. A regenerate heart is what allows us to follow Jesus from a place of sincerity. When we're born again, our love all of a sudden becomes genuine. Our good works, imperfect though they be, are inspired our worship is authentic. In the words of Jesus, when we are regenerate, we can worship him in spirit and in truth. And after we have been born again, we will be fundamentally changed in a way that will be utterly unmistakable. As J.C. Ryle has noted, when we are regenerated, when we're born again, we enter upon a new existence. We have a new mind, a new heart, new views, new principles, new tastes, new affections, new likings, new dislikings. New fears, new joys, new sorrows, new loves to things once hated, new hatred to things once loved, new thoughts of God and ourselves and the world and the life to come and salvation. That was the story of my conversion. I knew that God had really done something in my heart because I, I woke up one day and I just saw everything differently. Every aspect of my life had changed completely. A.C. Ryle, he said that in a way that I thought was pretty eloquent, but maybe we could just let Scripture speak for itself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christians, this body of death will remain with us, and we're going to have to fight sin until Jesus takes us home. But who we are at our core 
When we have been regenerated, that has been changed forever. We are not embarking on a journey where, where hopefully we arrive at a state of conversion. No, we are new creatures. Friends, we are in Decatur, Alabama. You know how many churches there are in Decatur, Alabama? <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot. We're in like the, the buckle of the Bible Belt, right? And we live in a region that is full of like southern genteel religion, right? Where we just assume that anyone who's nice has been made new. Anyone who has just good southern morals, you know, American flag on the pier truck, you're in church a good two out of four Sundays every month, you know? Just assume that people like, this, like these are Christians. But friends, Jesus did not come to make us new. Oh, excuse me. Oh. I don't want to recover from that one. <laughs> and it would have been so powerful if I would have just said it right the first time. No, but really though, <laughs> Jesus did not come to make us nice. He came to make us new. Right? Thanks. I needed that. So my question for you this morning, fellow church, church living in the South, my question for you is, have you been made new? I'm not at all interested in behavior modification. I'm not interested in your attendance sheet at church services, although being at church very much matters for being a Christian. I'm not interested in a number of ways you could try to qualify your sense, any, any kind of behaviors you look at as metrics to see whether or not you are a Christian or not a Christian according to what Southern moralism say is Christianity. What I want to know is, has God taken your heart of stone out of you and replaced it with a heart of flesh? Have you been made a new creature? I know we're all on our own individual journeys, and it can be difficult to discern times, and that's why the church is super important, because the church is there to tell us what we need to hear. But you, you basically know when you're not the same person you once were. You know when the music you listen to, you kind of can't do it anymore. The things that used to entertain you now have become repulsive to you. The food of sin that you used to enjoy now becomes something that you can't even, you can't even smell it. You can't in the same room with it. Like a pregnant woman, you know? Oh, get the tuna away from me. You know when you've been made, made new. Being made new is not the same thing as being perfect. Nobody's going to achieve that side of heaven. There was only one. His name was Jesus. But you can know if you've been made new. And if you're struggling, ask the people who know you best. Ask your husband, ask your wife, ask your children. One of the things that I love is to meet a brand Christian convert and then to walk with them through their discipleship and to watch them go from dark darkness right? and to just see that massive change. It's so easy to see. It's so easy to see. But it's difficult to see yourself sometimes. Church is important, friends. We help each other to make sure they have truly been made new. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later in the sermon. This teaching on regeneration it always reminds me of a great story from Charles Spurgeon. One day, Spurgeon was walking down the street when a man was drunk, leaning on a lamppost, and he yelled out to Spurgeon. He said, hey, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? And Spurgeon replied, no, should I? And he said, yes, I'm one of your converts. And Spurgeon responded with, well, you must be one of mine because you're certainly not one of the Lord's. Friends, it's clear that those who have been regenerate have been buried with Christ and raised with him to newness of life. The death that Jesus Christ died on the cross to make atonement for your sins, that death is the death that you have partaken in. And the resurrection that Jesus experienced after he paid the price for our sins is a resurrection that you experience as well. 
So have you died to your sins? And have you been raised to newness of life? I hope in the pews you're sitting there right now looking around going, who's the visitor who needs to hear this? Who's the unsaved person? Friends in the South, the person who needs to hear this could be you. It could be a member of this church. Have you been made? Before moving on to some application, I want to make sure that we don't miss something, something supremely important about this doctrine of regeneration. The main point that every biblical metaphor about conversion drives home is that conversion, true spirit rock conversion, is first and foremost a work of God. Some Christians think about conversion as something that man does and then God responds. That man makes a decision and then God responds and long changes his heart. As we've seen this morning, that's not the case. What must happen first is that God changes our hearts, and then out of that changed heart, we are capable of making the decision to repent and to follow Jesus. To, to get wrong, what theologians call the order salutis, the order of salvation, to get this wrong is to create all different kinds of problems in the, in the church. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. So, let's move on to some application. Let's remember what this sermon series is all about. We're doing a refresher on these truths because... We think that having a right understanding of them will affect our corporate life together. So how does, how does misunderstand conversion, having a, what we would call a man-centered view of conversion, where our responsibility is over God's action and initiative, how does having a man-centered view of conversion uh, make our church less healthy? Well, let's first start by t- talking church membership. We're going to start with church membership because there's a sense in which a wrong view of conversion will negatively affect church membership first, and then out of that, that will put every other kind of knock-on, deleterious effect. So, when a church has a man-centered view of conversion, we begin to think that we can bring about conversion ourselves, that we can use all different kinds of means and tactics to get people to follow Christ. There's a very famous book on evangelism that walks you through the 10 psychological principles that you can use to apply pressure to bring a man to Jesus. First, make sure you use his name, use it repetitively. Second, make sure you look into his eyes and do not break contact with him or else feel the moment fleeting. Third, place your hand with a strong grip on the potential convert's shoulder and don't let it go until he let go of his sins. And so on and so forth. It reminds me of when I was 18 and barely surviving <laughs> and I was working a sales job and somebody gave me a book on how I could be a better salesman. You know, it's just, you know, mirror them. When they sit back and cross their legs, you sit back and cross their legs. This is exactly what that feels like. And many churches adopt strategies that are just like this, sometimes even more silly. And when that happens, when a church begins to adopt a carnal mean, a carnal means of reaching the lost, uh, they often succeed. Right? It's not hard to reach people in the flesh with things that are of flesh. It's not hard to reach the world with the wisdom of the world. The question, are you really reach, reaching them? And the worst thing that can happen for a church that begins to implement strategies like this for reaching the lost, the worst thing that can happen is that they actually succeed. And all too often, they do. And what happens is is the pew of the church or the chairs or the movie theater chairs, whatever church chairs you might have, the church begins to fill up with goats rather than sheep. These churches are filled with false converts who may have made a decision for Christ, but who are by no means saved by Christ. And when the, the church of unregenerate members, everything else goes real south, real fast. Think about preaching. How many of us have been in churches where preaching was nothing more than a watered-down, emotionally-driven, inspirational, quote-riddled pet talk? 
Why is so much preaching so bad in so many churches? There are a bunch of reasons, but one reason is because these churches are full of unregenerate church members. When churches are full of false converts who don't want to hear the voice of Jesus, when churches are full of false converts that want to have their ears tickled, that's exactly what they'll get. 2 Timothy 4.3 For the time is when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, that is, tell me what I want to hear, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And what happens to a church when the preaching of God's word goes down the toilet? Well, the rest of the church goes with it. You remember from our sermon on expositional preaching, we said that God's people are not only given life by God's word, but they're also sustained in that life by God's word. When we fill our, our church with goats rather than sheep that demand to be fed straw rather than grain, then we find that our spiritual frame begins to wither away. Our immune system, our spiritual immune system begins to be compromised. Now all of a sudden all kinds of things are getting in and making the body sick that should be. When our church is filled with false converts, we will fail to practice church discipline as is clearly commanded in Scripture. Which means that our church will be increasingly marked by carnality rather than holiness because church discipline is the means by which we extricate the cancer from the body. We will not be a distinct people. And that has further knock-on effects for our evangelism because one of the main things that powers our evangelism is that we stand out as distinct from the world. It blows my mind. I'm not going to steal my thunder for next week. But it blows my mind that so many churches that are so riled up about evangelism, they want to do so much, they want to reach people for Jesus, they want to reach the world, are so concerned with it look exactly like the world. And that doesn't say anything to the world. When we try to look like the world, we're not even as good as the world. Think about the terrible music that has often come out. We're trying to be like you guys, but we can't even do it as, as good as you guys. Instead, we should be distinct from the world, but it's hard to do that when church is full of carnal people. Just keep going. What happens when biblical community is compromised in this way? Well, it loses its supernatural power. The gospel looks glorious in the church when we have a community that testifies to the gospel, right? Around you this morning, and no, nobody's actually going to look, but in your heart, in your mind's eye, think about all the people. Yeah, Grant's looking good. Thank you, brother. You take commands seriously. <laughs> I command you in the Lord. Look, at, look around. <laughs> This room full of people who would probably not be in the same place if it weren't for Jesus. Maybe there are little pockets of you. Like I'm looking at like Spencer's shirt and Steve Freeman's shirt. I bet y'all could hang out, right? But like largely, this is a room full of people who would probably not be in the same place at the same time if it were not for Jesus. And that makes the gospel look glorious. But we lose that sense of community when we're not gathered around Jesus. And that happens when the church is full of un unconverted people. We start to gather around any number of different affinities that have nothing to do with Jesus. We gather around our sports preferences or uh, our of life or our doctrinal distinctives. Christian community is supposed to be something that's beautiful and powerful. But when the church is full of goats, it just doesn't look that way at all. Friends, you have experienced community like this, I'm sure, if you've been a member of, well, a church for longer than a day, right? A community where half the congregation shows up late. And then once everyone is finally in the service, they're distracted and disinterested, spending more time on their phones than engaging worship, singing half-heartedly, listening unattentively, praying disinterestedly. And then when service is over, they 
rush out of the building like it's on fire, as if they would rather not, not be in the room as all the other people who were there gathered to worship with them. When a church is full of unregenerate members, biblical discipling will be nearly impossible. Right? Remember what discipling is. It's where I'm following Jesus and you're following Jesus and I come alongside you and try to help you follow Jesus more faithfully because I'm like maybe two steps ahead of you in the race. And then one day, you're going to be two steps ahead of someone in the race and you're going to come alongside them and you're going to help them to follow Jesus. But how can you do that? When the person that you're needing to disciple actually doesn't want to follow Jesus. They want to follow the world. They're a church for various and sundry reasons, none of which have to do with Jesus. How do you disciple someone when what they need first is to be converted? I hope you guys can see how everything that we're looking at together through this series, it all feeds into it. Everything feeds one into another. A wrong understanding of the gospel will lead to an understanding of conversion. A wrong understanding of conversion will lead to unhealthy membership. Unhealthy membership will negatively affect our evangelism, our discipleship, our community, our discipline, and more. On the other hand, when we have a right understanding of conversion, our churches will thrive and prosper. Will they be perfect churches? N- no, there's never been one of those. and <laughs> never will be. But a church can be imperfect and still be very powerful, which is my prayer for this church, imperfect though we be. Now, they, you know, the best sermons, they end with a bang. So this is probably not going to be one of my best sermons. I want to close by talking to you guys Real quick, just about the importance of why we practice church membership and church discipline the way that we do. If, if, if you've never experienced things before, it may not make much sense to you, but when you understand what the Bible says of conversion, well, then it begins to make perfect sense, right? The, the new covenant community of, of the church is supposed to be people whose hearts have been changed. And if it's composed of the people whose hearts have not been changed, then all the things that we're supposed to do together at church, those things all begin to fall apart. Every church has its own point of critical mass, you know, the tipping point where, like, you know, the percentages are, are, like, you know, set in such a way that this is when things begin to go downhill. But in general, we don't ever want to get close to that, insofar as is possible with us. As human beings who do not have X-rated detectors, uh, who don't have X-ray vision, we want to make sure that this new covenant community is composed of people who are truly regenerate, who have genuinely been converted to Jesus. And that's why we take church membership so seriously. Some people think it's too much, making people wait before baptized, having them do church membership classes, waiting just so we can see their lives a little bit to make sure that they actually live out all the things that they say. I think it's pretty appropriate, especially given our context. Our, our current religious context, again, especially here in the Bible, is bring them in, baptize them, and we'll sort it all out. And then they never sort it out, and then the church dies. In the early church... Uh, right after the New Testament, churches began to see persecution. And in light of persecution, a lot of people began to turn away from Jesus and back to, well, Judaism, paganism, whatever, just away from the persecution. So very early on in the life of church, various churches began to institute a catechesis process. And it could be anywhere from three months to six months to a year, where you would sit under the teaching of the Word you would be part of the community. You couldn't partake of the Lord's Supper. You, you couldn't do everything in the community, but you could be there. The Christians could see you and get to know you. You could see them and get to know them. You could learn the cardinal doctrines of the faith and what that means for your life. You were trained up to live your life as Christian. And then after you had done that, you would be received into the church. Now, how did the church do that? They did it because they were tired of seeing false converts. 
The new covenant community is not supposed to be a place where people come to know Jesus today and then abandon him tomorrow. And they were seeing it all too often. They went a little too far. Around the second century, you had to go through three years of catechesis before you joined. Three years. That was a bit much. But you see my point. I think it's good for us to have high fences in the church. Not impossibly high fences, but appropriately high fences. And then on the back end, church discipline. This is so important. It's, it's, if, if you think about the church as a human body, church discipline is our immune system. It's thing that God has built into the life of our body to make sure that, that invaders cannot live within us forever. Right? Church discipline is a mechanism that God has put in place to make sure that if that because we're human and we're fallible, unregenerate people come into the covenant community, they can once again be put out of the covenant community. Church discipline happens when we look at someone and we say, you know what, brother, sister, you say that you belong to Jesus, you profess it, but as we look at, look at your, your doctrine, we don't think that this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. We don't think that your heart has truly be. Go back and read the J.C. Ryle. We don't you have all that. And so we're going to need the team jersey back. I know that to the world this can seem unloving, it can seem cruel, but it's actually the most loving thing in the world. It demonstrates a love for Jesus because it says that we take his glory in the church seriously. We want to protect his bride. It takes the value of that individual sinner seriously. It shows us for them because we say, hey, we are concerned for your soul and we're just going to let you live in our midst and act like nothing is wrong when everything is wrong. When your soul is in danger. And it shows love for the body by protecting the body. Paul could not be any clearer. You let a, any clearer, you let a little bit of sin in the church you let it flourish, you, you don't do anything about it, you just kind of brush it under the rug, you know, oh, well, so-and-so committed adultery, but he's the cousin of the deacon. Uh, uh, uh. And all of a sudden, what you have is a church that has been completely overrun by sin. So in order to love God, in order to love the members of the church, in order to love the church, and even to love the world, to show them what it's supposed to look like to follow Jesus Christ, we must hold true conversion in the life of the church by practicing church discipline. And when I say must, I don't want it to sound to you all like it's something that we do begrudgingly. It's like mowing the lawn, you know? Oh, it's a good thing, but I can't stand it. No. Church membership and church discipline are things that are good, that God has given us to practice in a meaningful way because we love him, and so we do so with joy. For some of us, it's a process to learn how to do that with joy, but I think if you've been around here long enough, you've come to see how meaningful it can really be. Uh, if anybody has any other questions about conversion, regeneration, membership, or discipline, come see me after the service. I can I give you some resources. For now, let me close, and then we'll sing together and pray. Father God, we love you. We praise you. We light in you, and we are sinned by you. Your grace to us is real. You have drawn us out of the darkness and into the light. You have made us new. You have worked a miracle in our lives. Father God, we pray that you would bring in many more who don't know you, that you would save them from their sins, you would bring them into fellowship in this church. We pray that you would preserve the holiness of our church for the glory of your name and for the good of people. Amen. Amen.